We'll be reading from the book of Revelation today. Uh, Revelation chapter 2 is the beginning of the letters to the churches. And uh, there are some exegetes who say that these seven letters basically describe the church at different times through history. Uh, so that uh, in today's culture, we'd probably be described as the church of Laodicea because of the lukewarmness. But I, I believe exegetically that uh, these seven letters are addressed to all the churches through all the ages because these are common challenges that, uh, that, that, that all churches face. Now, please understand, I'm not dealing with all seven today. Uh, if I was, you'd need to be calling in pizza for the evening. But uh, we're just going to deal with the church at Ephesus and uh, see where the Lord takes us. It's our privilege to be reading the very Word of God. It is inspired, it is infallible, it is inerrant. In Nehemiah chapter 8, when Ezra opened the Scripture, the people stood out of respect for the author of this word. So please stand as we read God's word this morning. Revelation chapter 2 beginning in verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles. And they are not. And you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake. And have not grown weary. But I have this against you. That you have left your first love. Therefore remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. Father God, bless our study of the word this morning. Give us ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to respond as we seek to be faithful. For it's in the wonderful name of our Lord Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. As we look at this letter, we note, first of all, that it is addressed to the church in Ephesus, which at this time, or in the travels of the book of Paul and the book of Acts, we know was a, was a thriving church. Paul had planted this church. We read that in Acts 18. We read in Acts 18 also that Apollos pastored the church. Timothy pastored it, as we read in 1 Timothy chapter 1. And then we also understand that John the Apostle, prior to his exile, pastored this church. You know, that's quite a, a, a roster of heavy hitters, if you will, uh, that were feeding and nurturing and, and teaching these people in Ephesus. 
We also know uh, that even later in Paul's missionary journeys, that as he was returning to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 20, that he called the elders of Ephesus to meet him in Miletus. And uh, if you have some time this afternoon, I would encourage you to read that uh, discussion, Acts 20, verses 17 through 35, as he talks to these elders, as he prepares them for what's ahead. And obviously it was a solid group of elders. John writes approximately 40 years later, another generation has taken place within the leadership of this church and the church is no longer what it was now keep in mind that the city of Ephesus was a great city it was a wealthy prosperous city Uh, it was a trade center commercial center had a seaport at that time Uh, so there was a lot of there were a lot of things that were happening there it was also the capital of the Roman province Uh, So you had government uh, situations there, and it was a religious center. Uh, It was here, you remember, that Paul was uh, persecuted because he was calling the folks to throw away their idols, and and, and the the making of idols was one of the big uh, commercial ventures in this city. And so it was a, a seat of worship, the worship of Diana, and a great place to plant a church. So what happened? Well, as we look at this, I want you to see three things. This is what we're looking for. Number one, who's the speaker? And that's critical. Number two, what's the problem? And number three, what are we going to do about it? Because if the scripture is as authoritative today as it was when it was penned, then there is a call to action to which we must respond. So who's the speaker? What's the problem? And what are we going to do about it? Speaker is key, brothers and sisters, because we have the picture of the Lord Jesus Christ sending a message to these people. Well, who is this Lord? Well, When we go back to the first chapter of Revelation, we read in verses uh, uh, 4 through 7, the description, as uh, John writes, that uh, uh, the the word is from Jesus Christ, beginning in verse 4, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. So the description of Jesus Christ, past, present, future. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, the seven spirits is the picture of the messengers that the king, isn't that what a throne refers to? That the king sends out to his churches. And as I view the number seven, uh, that doesn't represent a literal seven. Seven, in essence, in Scripture is that perfect number. So the messengers that are sent out to all the churches and from Jesus Christ, who is described as the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever. 
And then look what John says in verses 12 through 16 as he describes this one who is the speaker. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like the flame of fire. His feet were burnished bronze, when it had made to glow in the furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. What's that? Reference to Scripture. The Word of God is that two-edged sword. Isn't that what we read in Ephesians 6? As Paul goes through the armor of God and then he, 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 he comes to that point where he talks about the Roman soldier and the, and, and, and the sword, which is the Word of God, the Word of the Spirit. And then in Hebrews, it's referred to as a two-edged sword. So out of his mouth, the picture of a sword, but it's God's Word. And that also, that's a, for another lesson, but brothers and sisters, that also makes reference to the power of this. Because you've got to understand, historically, the most powerful weapon in the world in Paul and John's day was that short Roman sword. If I remember correctly, I shared this with you guys. That short Roman sword that literally was the weapon that Rome used to rule the world. So in Paul's mind, the most powerful thing he can imagine, well, as we look at it, that's talking about God's Word. John's response in verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. In other words, he was so overwhelmed by the picture that he couldn't even stand in the presence of the greatness of this man. So as we begin, we've got to understand that the speaker to the churches is the Lord of the church, the King of the universe, that one who fulfilled the very plan of God, that one who accomplished with his perfect life and his sacrificial death and his resurrection on the third day, purchased for God. His people established a kingdom. Now, when you think of the kingdom, please understand, don't fall into Pilate's problem, you know, and he couldn't understand Jesus as a kingdom because Pilate only thought of geographical boundaries. He only thought of governments. And Jesus tells him, hey, listen, my kingdom is not of this world. Why not? Because the kingdom of Jesus Christ is in the heart of the believer. That's a kingdom that changes lives. And it's that kingdom over which Jesus Christ rules and reigns. That kingdom is what the church of Jesus Christ is a part of. And so as we look at this letter, brothers and sisters, we've got to understand it is that king who is talking to his church. He bought it. He paid for it with his precious blood. That's the one who is addressing us today as we think about what this church in Ephesus is being confronted with. The king of the church is speaking to his church. 
And he says to his church, you guys have been so busy. Oh, you're doing a lot of things. You're involved in in all these different activities. You're an active church. You're an enduring church. You're a church that has, has suffered a lot, both internally and externally. But... But you endure, and you don't grow weary. And, and oh, by the way, you're, you're a very orthodox church. You show discernment as you examine these people, as, as John says here. You examine these people who say that they're apostles, but you hold them up to the test of Scripture, and you know that they're not. You're very orthodox, and, and I commend you for that. And and later in that paragraph, he says, I commend you because you stood up against the Nicolaitans. This was a group that were were teaching heresy. And yet the church had enough discernment to stand up against that. So they were a busy church, very active, a lot of things going on. Uh, they, They were a church that hung in there. They didn't give up easy. They didn't become weary. And they were a church that was astute in their understanding of Scripture. They were orthodox. You know? Appears to be a model church. Its members were busy in service, patient in their suffering, and orthodox in their belief. But. Verse 4. Remember. It is the king who is speaking. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. What in the world is he talking about? These guys were busy. These guys uh, hung in there. You know, these guys were orthodox, but... They have left. The word left makes reference to abandoned or forsaken. The word love is that biblical word agape, which makes reference to self-sacrificial actions that demonstrate the validity of love that we have for one another. This is the, the this word uh, described or is best described in John 3:16. For God so loved the world, what did He do? He sent His Son. You see, the supreme action of a father sending his son to die for us. This is that agape love, for God so loved the world. It's a spontaneous feeling which implies self-sacrifice. And we're told that these folks had left that. They had fallen from the early heights of devotion to Christ to which they had climbed. They had descended to the plains of mediocrity. As we wrestle with the significance of this, keep this in mind. They toiled with vigor, but not with love. They endured with fortitude, but without love. They tested their teachers with orthodoxy, but had no love in their hearts. Why is this critical? Well, let's do a little study on this word. Charles, i got plenty of time, brother. 
First of all, Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? He responds to the man who asks him within the context of, okay, if I, if I break nine of the commandments, which one do I not want to touch? Okay? Uh, Jesus responds by tying it all together. In other words, you can't. You know, you break one, you break them all. This is what, uh, what, what James refers to as the royal law of love. Okay? Uh, Jesus responds by saying the greatest commandment is to love, and this is where that agape comes into play, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And the second one is to love your neighbor as yourself. So you see, you've got that horizontal relationship involved there, that relationship with God that as we love him, keeping in mind that we love because what? He first loved us. It wasn't something I initiated. You know, because of his love for us, demonstrated by, by, by the sacrifice of his son on the cross, you know, he loved us and, and we respond back in return. And as we love him, that love is manifested to those around us. Now be careful, don't fall into the trap. Remember Jesus said it, uh, the second part, the second, and the second is likened to it, and that is to love your neighbor as yourself. Guys, don't fall into the trap. And Christian counselors do this. They say that you can't love your neighbor until you love yourself. That's what Jesus is saying there. And so self-love is where you start. Guys, that's self-deification. We don't have trouble loving ourselves. What Jesus is saying here is the way you love yourself, that needs to be transferred into loving your neighbor. So don't fall into this self-image garbage. Okay? Guys, the only self-image you can have is if you fall on your knees as a sinner before the great Savior and embrace Him as your Lord. And as your Savior. So that love for God flows out into that love for others. John 14, 15, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. In other words, there's a sense in which because of our love for the Savior, our natural response is to live in obedience to Him. I have a, I'm dean of students now, you know, it's kind of fun. Uh, get to deal with high school kids. Oh, I love my dad, I love my mom, but I hate their curfews and all this kind of garbage rot. Listen, guys, if a teenager loves his parents, what's going to happen? He's going to want to please them. He's going to want to obey. So don't let a teenager tell you that rot, okay? If we love the Lord Jesus Christ, what? It flows out into this obedience that strengthens us. Paul writes in Galatians 5, 6, as he's talking about the context of living our lives with one another, the idea of Christian liberty, he says, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything, but faith, my commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ, but faith working through what? Through love. 2 Corinthians 5.14, Paul says, it's the love of Christ that motivates me, that compels me. 
In other words, that love that, 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 that Paul had for his Lord and the love that we're to have for, uh, for, uh, for our Lord that moves us, that drives us. John 13, 34 and 35, and Francis Schaeffer, by the way, wrote an excellent book uh, concerning this particular portion in Scripture entitled Mark of a Christian, where he talks about Jesus saying here, as he's talking to his disciples, this is in the upper room, you know, John 13, 14, 15, and 16, that upper room discourse, as Jesus says to his disciples, and this has got some interesting implications, guys. He says to his disciples, verses 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you. Okay? Remember who's, who, who's the one speaking to us through the church at Ephesus? It's the king, right? Who's the one speaking in the upper room to his apostles? It's the king, right? And he says, a new commandment I give you. Guys, when a king gives a command, what does that mean? That doesn't mean, well, let's put it in a committee. That doesn't mean, let me think about it. That doesn't mean it's a suggestion. It's a what? It's an order. It's a command, a new commandment I give unto you. That you love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. In other words, he's the example of it himself. Okay? He tells us, guys, this is what you're going to do. And oh, by the way, guys, I showed you how to do it. I modeled it before you. But you know, this may be the toughest part. By this, Jesus goes on to say, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So the presence of this agape, which the Ephesians church, who knows, it's not there anymore. The presence of this agape is what demonstrated the reality of the church and the way that it dealt with other people and the way that it dealt with itself. John numerous times talks about the importance of this love in his first letter. 1 John 3, 17, 18. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. 4, 20 and 21. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Colossians chapter 3, verse 14 in a list of characteristics of what a Christian is to be, Paul writes, and beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. As, as you look at these references, and, and please get a, uh, get a concordance and, 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 or a cross-reference and, and look up, they're numerous through the New, through the New Testament. Okay? 
you, you begin to see that this idea of love is the, is the, the, the primary motivational factor for everything that we do. That when Jesus looked at that Ephesian church, yes, he saw they were busy. Yes, he saw that they persevered. Yes, he saw that they were orthodox. And yet they were not driven by a love for the Savior. They had slipped into a works righteousness and therefore, in essence, were busy earning their way to heaven. Brothers and sisters, everything that we do is motivated by our love for the Savior. If we're busy within the works, that, uh, uh, within the kingdom works here on the Gulf Coast, it first of all is because we love our Master so much that just like He told His disciples in, in, in Matthew 28 when He told them, Go and make disciples. Again, the king, and, and by the way, it's within that context where it talks about the, 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 uh, the Lord being the king commanding his troops to go. And he tells them, go, make disciples. But why do we do that, guys? This is where the issue comes into play. Because we can, we can fool ourselves into thinking we're pretty good. Because we're doing a lot. Historically, this is why the church slipped into the tragedy of the social gospel. You know, we were doing all these great things, but then we were doing the things, but not because of a love for Jesus. We can persevere and keep a stiff upper lip but we kind of slip into a self-righteous, sectimonious type of a religious experience there. And we can be orthodox, but boy, it's an ugly orthodoxy. And, and, and within our culture, listen, there is plenty that we need to, to maintain our orthodoxy from federal vision, which is out there, uh, to the... the you rule by pragmatism, which the PCA is slipping into big time, and, and, and plenty to be orthodox about. And to be discerning of Scripture is critical. But without love, love for the Savior, who has made us His, and love for those around us, We are empty vessels and have lost our mission. See, that was the problem with the church in Ephesus. Can you imagine having a pastoral lineage that included Paul and Apollos and Timothy and John? Can you imagine being put in a pivotal place in order to impact the culture around you? Can you imagine being put right in the front of hidden pagan worship and taking on the enemy with vigor? That's where the Ephesus church was. And they, they were so busy 
that they lost their sight of the first love. When we look at ourselves here, it's easy to get busy. Oh, I'm mad that one of the challenges of our culture is busyness, no doubt. And it's easy to get busy in terms of things of the church. No, you got different activities going on, all this kind of stuff. It's easy to get caught up in that. I'm not saying that's wrong. Please understand that, and hopefully you'll see it when I finish up. You know, those things are important. You know, hanging in there is important when things are tough. But, you know, tough times, that's how God grows us. And it's critical to be orthodox. We must know the Word of God that we don't get led astray or that the Church of Christ doesn't continue to flow into heretical teaching. But if we don't do it because of the love of our Savior, in other words, if the love for our Savior isn't the driving force, that energy that sends us out, then we've fallen into the trap of the Ephesian church. It always must start with a love for the Savior. A love for the Savior that so moves me that I want to go out and I want to share what that means. I want a fellowship with my brothers and sisters in Christ because we need to encourage each other. We do need each other. I want to do these things because I love Jesus. And I want to hang in there when times are tough because I love Jesus and I know He has made me His. He bought me. He paid for me. And He is refining me to be something special that He will use for His glory. And I want to be orthodox. I want to know the Word of God that I can be a faithful tool that He will use. Because remember, that two-edged sword is a powerful weapon. The love of the Lord Jesus Christ has got to be that thing that drives us. And if we've lost sight of that, remember, this king said to the church in Ephesus, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The love of Christ is that thing which should control everything. Let's pray.